You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You're after something. Is it revenge? Money? Or is it something else? You look good. A little rough around the edges, but good. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. What do you think? Uh... Well, what do you know? You got a line on a ship? Yeah, I know a guy. He's the best smuggler around. I heard a story about you. I was wondering if it's true. Everything you've heard about me is true. <laughs> L3! Let's go with a mean man's face. It was these guys. If you come with us, you're in this life for good. You might want to buckle up, baby. Some advice. We assume everyone will betray you, and you will never be disappointed. I got a really good feeling about this. Since when do you know how to fly? 190 years old? You look great. Push it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Josh Stewart. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I accept it. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are discussing the 2018 film from director Ron Howard and a couple other guys. Solo, a Star Wars story. It's the origin story of Han Solo, a smuggler, rogue, and ne'er-do-well how often does he do well? Nair, Nair do well, who became a respected officer in the Re- Rebel Alliance until he was horrifically murdered by his own son. This is the early days when he was a little artful dodger on Corellia and all those fun things that happened to him that put him on the path to be the Han Solo that we all loved before he was horrifically murdered by his own son. So spoilers ahead, be <laughs> warned if you haven't seen this film. Just, you know, or any of the other Star Wars films, and apparently Rebels, but we'll talk about that as well. So, Chris, were you excited about the prospect of a solo origin film when you first heard about it? I am always excited about any Star Wars movie when I first hear about it. But Han has never been my favorite character. I never wanted to be him when we would play because I was I was five when the first one came out, like perfect age. So, like, that's all we did at recess and stuff. Uh, I kind of wanted to be Darth Vader all the time because I was taller than everybody else and I hated people. So uh, my my initial thought was, well, what can they do with this character that 
hasn't been laid out in the books or the comics or or any anything like that. Uh, but then I'm like, still, I will watch it. So that's a maybe, I guess. How about you, Josh? I, I can't remember where I was in the timeline of things when they announced this. Was it if Rogue One had already come out, then I probably didn't care at all. Rogue One and I did not gel. Uh, I I remember going, well, it's a Star Wars movie. I'll I'll probably see it. And I did. I saw it in the theater, which I didn't anticipate doing. But this was the year of movie pass right before everything went down the toilet. Uh Oh, those were the days, weren't they? Yeah. Now I uh, just got to work in a movie theater to get the free movies. (laughs) Yeah, Rogue One did not go down with me well either. And it's not one that I think I'll ever really revisit. So I wasn't necessarily that excited about the idea of a solo origin film, especially because whoever they were going to cast as solo had this unenviable task of trying to fill those shoes that had been filled by Harrison Ford before. And unlike you, Chris, I really liked Han Solo when I was coming up. I liked Jawas the most for whatever reason. (laughs) I pretty much recast the entire world of Star Wars, and I had a Jawa at the center who knew the Force, and Yoda was his buddy, and they were about the same size, and then they were both married to different Princess Leias, one in the Bespin outfit, and one, like, the regular, and though I really liked, who was it, Bosch or Bosch or whatever, when when she was all dressed up like the uh, bounty hunter, oh, that was fantastic. The Mighty Bosch, I think, something (laughs) like that. (laughs) I, I liked Han Solo plenty, and I liked the Millennium Falcon, and I liked Chewbacca quite a bit. But um, yeah, I was just like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll watch it. And I have to say, I really actually enjoyed this movie quite a bit. Um, I, I found it to be a very fun adventure film. There are some Western elements to it, though I've rewatched it now a couple times for the show, and I don't know how well it holds up. I'm curious what you guys think about that. This was a case where, like I said, it was the year of movie pass, and I was going to watch anything regardless of you know quality or expectation just because it was there. Like I said before, I'd already been really, really let down by Rogue One. I felt that that just fell flat on its face uh, as a narrative. I, I was just bored to tears with it, and I was like, oh, if this is what all the solo – or not solo, but all the side stories are going to be like, I don't want that. And, you know, I didn't uh, didn't hate The Force Awakens, didn't hate – the Last Jedi wasn't on the big old, oh no, big woman make thing go bad bandwagon. Uh, I just take it as it comes. And I went into it uh, with zero expectation. And I, I'm i not going to say that it's like the best movie in the series, but I think it's the most fun I'd ever had watching one. I had no clue what I was getting myself into. And it just felt like a kind of a rollicking adventure movie. It, it was hit the hit the ground running. It didn't really let up most of the way through. And it had a good sense of humor about itself, which I'm sure some of that was Lord and Miller left over. There's always that winking at the camera stuff that you're going to get in a prequel to a classic series. But for the most part, I just I thought it was an absolute blast and I had no idea that was going to happen. To go back a little bit before the release, once uh, Donald Glover was announced as Lando, I was all in because there's nobody. I mean, if you're going to fill shoes, that's the man you want in Lando's shoes. And then I'm like, I don't care. Uh, if this gets 8% on Rotten Tomato, I'm going to watch this at least once, probably twice, because, you know, I love Donald Glover and Mystery Team. Yes. Um, so <laughs> uh, I'll watch 
him in anything and i thought he was he was fantastic this the whole film had that lightheartedness but with a sense of urgency that the original three had which is really i what i felt was missing from the prequel trilogy it was way too serious and um when they tried to have a bit of levity for me it just kind of fell flat uh even though i still like them but this got back to tonally uh, how i feel star wars should be it's an interesting film because like i said and and uh, josh you said that there were two other directors that were working on this uh gordon miller who are more famous for stuff like uh the lego movie and they also worked on the um, incredible spider-man film the animated film that came out last year um i was kind of unfamiliar with their work i don't think i saw the lego movie until after the first wave had already hit and I was just like, okay, whatever. And I didn't know the everything is awesome song and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> their, their ship kind of sailed by. So I'm just like, okay, whatever. And you know, Hey, they're bringing in these new directors, these young directors. Okay. This is all going to be good. And then it's like, okay, well we're getting rid of this director for this project and we're getting rid of this director, <laughs> for this project. So it's like this really rough track record that Disney Lucasfilm is having with these young directors and uh, from what I understand, they were like three weeks before the end of principal photography when oh. they got shit canned. So, yeah, and I couldn't believe it when I was reading it. I was like, three weeks? I mean, that's crazy. So, when they turned around and got Ron Howard to agree to come in, and that was – we went from three weeks to three days. They got him in three days to agree to come in and take this project over. And they shut down for a little while, and I'm not sure how long that was. And then, according to DGA rules, and it's very funny because in all of these articles, they make this real pointed thing. According to DGA rules, you have to shoot 70% of a movie for you to get the sole director credit, though I'm sure there's still arbitration and shit that goes on. Some people are saying, oh, he shot 90%, he shot 80%. And then even watching the extras on the disc, it's really funny because they don't mention Lord Miller whatsoever. And they just say, like, um, they don't even say shut down. They're just just like after we paused, <laughs> and I was like, "Really?" <laughs> it's really fun to watch this movie and try to pick apart what was there originally versus what was reshot, and everything with Paul Bettany was all brand new stuff because it was another actor completely in that role. That's and right. I, and the first time they were talking about having that character, he wasn't even human. So I'm very curious if this, like the scars and stuff on Paul Bettany's face are all just like, we can't do all the makeup and shit, so we're just going to have you do that, and we'll add it all in post. Yeah, it, it kind of worked out, though, because I feel like Paul Bettany's usually really dependable, no matter the project. So he, he he brings it, even though it's, I mean, he's in the movie, what, maybe 20 minutes? He's barely, barely there, but he leaves an impact. He definitely does. And it took me a while to realize that those marks on his face change in the movie, that they get more pronounced when he's angry, and then they get more less announced when he is uh, in a more calm mood. So it really kind of – it's almost like his mood ring. <laughs> yeah, it actually made me think of, of uh, the Mass Effect series of games where you, in, I think, the second one – you're you're kind of reconstructed after you get killed, and if it, depending on whether you're good or evil, however you know you view that in the world, uh, like the more wicked side of you, your face kind of starts to bleed through similarly. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a nice touch. 
So it's almost like a fun party game to watch this movie and try to re-piece it together in your head and see what came from where. And there are certain things where I'm just like, okay, that seems like that was probably a Lord Miller touch. But then, of course, I mean, as soon as Clint Howard shows up, you're like, okay, well, for sure. But then... Finally, somebody attractive in a Star Wars movie. It took long enough. But then even watching uh, all the making of stuff... I mean, Ron Howard is there. Like, they do not show a scene in the making of where he is not physically present. So, and they show all of the major set pieces he is involved in. So, they must have really just shot so much new stuff. I don't know when they wrapped it up, but I know that they didn't end up missing their release date of May of 2018, which, kind of to your guys' point, was a little it almost would have been better had they released it in December because I think it was almost too much to have the last Jedi in December and then have a solo film in May. And they should have waited a couple months before they started, you know, pushing out another star Wars film. To be fair though, I think maybe it was, uh, they should have waited for the last Jedi. We'll say bullshit to die down because I, but it I hasn't mean, yet. No, no, <laughs> no it, it still hasn't. hasn't. But if you look at if you look at, at the I Marvel just uploaded a video today about how <laughs> awful it is. <laughs> I mean, in March we had um Captain Marvel. Um and I'm just gonna stop there because I don't want anybody to jump on that argument. And then we had Endgame and then Spider Man and they're all they all did amazing. Well he is the amazing Spider Man. Well that, you know, Mysterio's in it and he's been my favorite since I've been like four years old. So of course that movie was gonna be good to me no matter what. No, I agree with you as far as like the release schedule for the Marvel movies makes sense and especially that they're so interconnected. Like having, of course, last year with or two years ago I guess it was with Black Panther no, it was last year. Black Panther and then having Infinity War just a couple months after and having that so dependent and then even Thor just a few months prior to that. And it really built, 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 built. But with this one, you're taking not just a step back when it comes to solo, but you're taking like decades back and going like before A New Hope. So there wasn't necessarily that interrelatedness that we have with those Marvel films, not to try to you know shit all over your argument. No, no, but any interconnectedness between um, this, between Solo and Rogue One, it's just you have to pay attention to background characters to see that. Characters in Emphis Nest's um, swoop gang show up with oh, Forrest Whitaker. He was uh, Saw Gerrera with his group. They show up and, and it's like they've moved to different rebel groups resistance groups but that's the only real connection you see between anything so it's not it's not close enough it's not close enough to that like for it to be a marvel thing where it's like i have to see the next big thing no doubt it's it's just that i mean behind this and marvel it's still all disney so somebody up there is just saying well if it's working for this big part of the production we can do it with lucasfilm too and it didn't work out the same way well, also, they have the historic two to three years between movies, depending on which trilogy we're talking. Uh, so we're, we're kinda, that's kind of built into um, to our subconscious of, all right, I saw a Star Wars movie. Now I'll do something for two years and wait for the next one. The movie really plays hard on the whole idea of the Han Solo fetish item, which is the dice. And those dice, we had just seen those so prominently in The Last Jedi. And it's like, 
what are you doing? Why are these dice that important? Like, they were never that important before. Like, during the whole beginning, you know, the first 30 movies, it's like, they were just like kind of an extra thing. And you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. He's got some dice hanging from his rear view window. Oh, that, that's that's kind of funny. And now it's like this major thing. And like, we get so many fucking close-ups of the dice in the Han Solo movie. It's like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> okay, so Luke Hans um lay of the dice but like the millennium falcon's still there that's still more a part of who han was than the dice but i mean you can't carry the ship in your pocket i guess yeah it's more it's more of a thing between han and kira than it is between han and leia at this point well and somehow he managed to shoot those dice over with his holographic projection because he wasn't actually there or do the dice disappear i think they did Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. In Kylo Ren's hand, they disappeared as kind of a final F you from Luke to, uh, okay. to Ren. And from his father, who he horrifically <laughs> murdered. Yes. <laughs> yes. He was sick of the dad jokes. But yeah, we start with Han Solo on Corellia. We've heard about Corellia for years, and we've heard about the Corellian ships. I'm not running Imperial Starships. Not the local bulk cruisers, mind you. I'm talking about the big Corellian ships now. And the movie kind of starts almost like Oliver. I mean, we've got this whole idea of this band of scamps and they're being led by this kind of Fagan-esque character. So I guess Han Solo is more the artful dodger than he is Oliver Twist because he knows the rules of the game, though he's still kind of naive. Like he gets played pretty easily by Kira, uh, but we can talk <laughs> about that as we go along. But yeah, we've so we set up all of these things very quickly. Though I'm, I'm not sure if I really appreciate the info dump that we get because almost as immediately after Han meets Kira, he's like, "Hey, I've got this coaxium, and it's worth this much money." And she's like, "And we can get a ship, and we can go here, and we can get away from this place." And they like lay out all this kind of stuff. But I mean, yeah, we're we're going at least this movie, like you said. It, it hits the, the gas pedal, and it never really lets up. There are very few pauses in this thing. And, yeah, I kind of appreciate that, though there is that info dump at the beginning. All right, listen. I was in the middle of the exchange. I'm handing over the coaxium, and his goons jumped me, but I showed him. How? I ran away. Then I boosted their speeder. What, are we going somewhere? Yeah. And then what do we want? You held on to one of the files. This? This is worth... Five, six hundred credits. That's more than you said we'd need. Hon, this is going to work. This is going to work. Kira, you always said one day we're going to get out of here. This is it. The one thing going back and rewatching it, I, I remember thinking, man, did they did they really cram all that information in like the first five minutes like I thought they did when I saw it in the theater? And <laughs> I've rewatched it twice this weekend. Yeah, that they, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> Like it's not a crank movie. You don't have to. You don't. You don't have to hit the ground running quite that hard for me to know what's going on. Do you need that kind of info dump? I mean, when you're trying to bribe somebody, they can just say this is only worth six hundred credits, and and they can say, yeah, but you need hyperspace fuel. Well, you can work that in instead of just two characters stating what they already know. But but then again, I didn't have a. I didn't take a huge issue with it. So. No, I have to say that there are very few things in this movie that I had a major issue with, and that's fine. You know, I, I'm glad for that. I was really glad that I was just like, okay, this is cool. And there's a lot of like what they call nowadays fan service, but I'm just like, okay, 
this this works. I'm I'm actually okay with this stuff. We don't get a lot of that at the beginning here with this stuff on Corellia, which I appreciate. You know, we start off fast. We have this whole like, what's going on? You know, oh, it's this uh, white worm that is you know leading these kids. Is kind of the the faking character, and there's this character Moloch, and I'm very curious: is Moloch the same kind of thing that? Lady Proxima is because he seems to burn with the sun when he when Han Solo throws that rock and breaks a window. Is he like the male of the species, so he gets to walk around and not be in water and stuff? Yeah, I, I looked them up, and they are the same species. And one does appear to be male. Lady Proxima obviously is is female. Let me see. He's listed as male, so maybe he's younger. I don't know. I mean, he has he has human proportions, um, but I know that the figure of him um, he has under his cloak kind of a a wormish slug type body instead of legs, which kind of goes against how he's moving in the movie. But I don't really care about that. If you look at stuff like um, spiders and and stuff like that, the the female can be huge and the male can be just like the size of her eyeball. I was just watching some stuff on spiders today. So, so I mean, you can have huge differences in size between male and female species is all I'm getting at, I guess. Yeah, some of so. us like it that way. <laughs> <laughs> More cushion for the pushing, as they say. So, I know some people, again, they've got issues with, like, Why in the hell is your main vampire holdout room protected by thin glass from direct sunlight? For fuck's sake, just get over yourself. It I don't just, know. They're vampires. I assume, yeah. yeah, I assumed it was built before they inhabited it. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. that can happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't I, yeah, exactly, whole... you know, uh, a top-tier hotel. No. Right. <laughs> no. Yeah, this whole world, I like the design of this world in the way that it's so run down and, you know, feels very much like New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> they did say it smelled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, um, what's his name? Voss makes a real point of talking about how awful the smell is and stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. really, really pushing, Han. Oh, yeah. There yeah. were there were a couple of nice um, design things in, in the, the lair of the white worm, I guess we'll say. Hanging from the ceiling, there's these there's these tube looking things with boxes and red lights on them that are straight out of the um, the Death Star in the huge. They're not trenches in the huge where Luke and Leia swing. Uh, and and so it looks like they took Death Star designs, moved them to Corellia because the Corellians built Star Destroyer parts. So it looks like Corellia industrial design is all throughout the Empire, which I thought kind of neat because it visually and for a lot of people, I would imagine subconsciously kind of pulls it all together. That would, That's kind of nice because then it's not forced. It's just it feels familiar. And it, you're not you're not battered in the face with it. I like the design of the ships too, especially when they're having this road race through the the streets of Corellia. I thought that the design of the two ships were really good, and apparently they based Han's ship on a lot of like old Dodge Chargers and you know like the muscle cars out of Detroit. So it's like, oh, okay, maybe that's why it appeals to me. Yeah, I mean, this is the. The director of the original Grand Theft Auto here, the star of Eat My Dust, directing this now. Ron Howard pops the clutch and tells the world to eat my dust. There's a good scene in here uh, that got cut where they're uh, actually having a foot race away from Moloch and they dive into this uh, 
a big container filled with eels. Yeah. And they're, again, they're talking about the smell and how awful it smells because that actually throws the dogs off. And then when they get out of there, uh, there's a kind of a cute moment where Han thinks that she's grabbing his thigh. Uh, Kira, this is the, uh, Amelia Clark character. And he, uh, so that, that motivates them to get out of the tank a little faster. And then it was a kind of a nice, call back to uh, Stand By Me where he reaches into his pants and pulls out one of these snakes and throws it. It kind of reminded me of uh, River Phoenix. So I was just like, oh, so it's River Phoenix was doing the origin of uh, Indiana Jones and this, you know, then oh, nice. uh, Aaron Wright's doing the origin of Han Solo. I thought that was kind of nice. <laughs> In that scene, isn't there a part where he leans in to kiss her and she's like, not now. Right. <laughs> I like that because, like, he's so totally oblivious to anything except what he wants at that point. It kind of speaks to him a little bit. I like that he's that oblivious when it comes to that. <laughs> and my complaint, I've I've said on the show before, is when it comes to River Phoenix becoming Indiana Jones, he becomes Indiana Jones in, like, an afternoon. You know, it's like, oh, here's the snakes. Here's the whip. Here's the this. Hat, here's the hat. Yeah, exactly. And he gets the hat from the guy, you know, next time, kid, whatever. And at least with this, it takes at least two hours for him to <laughs> become on Solo, if not, you know, a couple days here. So I was very happy that they spaced out some of this stuff. Some of the moments, like when he gets the blaster and they cut to the close-up of the blaster, I was like, that's a little much, but okay, yeah, I, I never would have thought that there was a lot of, like, emotional resonance to one specific blaster. Like, yeah, it's a blaster. I assume they all have blasters. You would think so. When, when you're watching, like, a, a regular, you know, earthling crime movie, you don't see, like, like Scarface pick up a 9mm and, like, look longingly at it. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, it's just a gun. I think even at the beginning, he's kind of wearing the inverse of the Han Solo white ve- uh, white shirt, black vest and stuff. I was like, okay, that's kind of a nice nod, but in a reverse way. And you never see him like, I'm going to wear this cool vest. This is where, <laughs> this is where it's at. <laughs> Some people just find their style early on. That's true. And yeah, he's got nothing on Lando when it comes to style. Oh, God, mm. yeah. We hear about Crimson Dawn when they finally make it to the place where they're going to to leave Corellia, and I think Kira is the one that mentions Crimson Dawn, and that's kind of a thing in this movie, is that we're going to mention a person or a thing, and then we'll see them later on, because we also get a mention of Enfys Nest at another part, like, coming up rather soon, and... I will be 100% honest, uh, coming into this movie, even though I thought I was a Star Wars fan, I had never heard of Crimson Dawn, and every time they said Crimson Dawn, all I could think of was Hans Gruber asking for Asian Dawn (laughs) to be let go. The following people are to be released from their captors. In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front. In Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What the fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. And then Emphis Nest, I didn't realize until maybe three days ago that that is a person and not an organization. Uh, oh, well, you're, you're three days ahead of me then. Okay. <laughs> 
because I mean, especially with the name, like a nest. Yeah, it sounds mm-hmm. yeah exactly like it sounds. A group of something. Yeah, it's a really emphis nest. Whatever emphis means. Even for Star Wars, that's a that's a strange and almost difficult to say first name. The other thing that people really object to was him getting his name, and I can kind of see why they object to that, but yeah. mm. uh, uh, that's a really awkward scene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of the a lot of the the callbacks and the the explanations for things you already know, like some of it feels pretty diegetic, but that's the one scene that. We didn't need that. <laughs> no. I'm not really sure why he needed to be given a last name on camera. Yeah. I I saw one guy uh, was talking about this film, and he was just like, hey, how about at the end, Beckett says, you're going to have to fly solo now, or something like that. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that, that'd probably be a little bit better. And then Han yeah. takes that as a name. Yeah. And an alias, if you will. That's that's right up there with uh, Remo Williams. The adventure begins when he gets his name off of a bedpan. Right. <laughs> you remember when Peter Griffin was trying to come up with a fake name, and he's looking around the office, and he sees something that spells out P, and then Tur, and then a Griffin flies <laughs> through the office. <laughs> that's a major thing that people have an issue with prequels. First of all, you know who's going to live and who's going to die, because. It's a prequel, but also you don't need every little thing explained. He could have already been Han Solo from the beginning. He didn't have to, they didn't have to do that. I can see how that, that gets annoying, but at least, I mean, I don't remember Chewie getting a bowcaster, which would be, which is nice (laughs) because he didn't have to get one. He had a regular blaster rifle and he had a, a more Clone Wars era looking bandolier thing going on. But that's because that's what they wear. That's that's Wookiee clothing. That's the style. Yeah. He didn't have to get the one that he has in A New Hope and the rest of them. And that's perfectly fine. And they were saving that for the sequel that nobody decided to make. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost guaranteed. So there's an interesting thing here that – so Han Solo says about a thousand times in this movie that he wants to be a pilot and that he is a pilot. And – there's a, to me, a very crucial cut scene in here that I think would play better because, so he's talking to the guy who gives him his name and he's like, you know, when do I get to fly? And the guy says, we'll have you flying in no time. Then there's a funny cut to him flying through the air in this battle on Mimban or whatever, whatever it is, this kind of World War One type battle that they're having. And what it used to be, or in one of the original scenes was we'll have you flying in no time cut to him flying a tie fighter with one wing basically gone and him like trying to land it in a star destroyer and him arguing with the computer and stuff and then he actually goes and has like a little tribunal where they're just like you suck you're (laughs) you're a horrible person you disobeyed orders even though he's like listen i was trying to do this and that and the other thing and if i had stayed in formation this guy would have died and yada yada and then again it ends with him like you know oh well when do i get to fly again and then the guy almost says the exact same thing of like we'll have you flying in no time and then cut to him on this planet and i was like okay well at least with that other scene it shows that he actually can fly and maybe he's kind of shit at flying because then when he gets behind the wheel of the millennium Falcon, you're just like, Oh man, this guy might really fuck some shit up now. He's not careful in that, in that, um, the, the comet iceberg 
area there, whatever, whatever L3 called it. I forget. Um, Harbenbergs or yeah, something? Or yeah. Harbin meteorites? Yeah, I don't yeah. even know what He's they're going for. He's smashing into shit left and right. He wants that ship more than anything in the world. And he treats it like like a burner phone. So it's kind of like, do you really love this ship? Because if that's how you treat things you love, whew. Well, that's why Kira leaves her. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing I've always thought was interesting about, even in, in the original series, Han Solo tends to be more bravado than actual, you know, than actually accomplishing what he's trying to do. You know, there, there are those moments that he has that could be the cool, cool guy moments, uh, in that, like the, the bit on the radio in that first movie. And then, fine, ha- how are you? And then he just, he totally blanks out. And I feel like you actually kind of get, you know, more of that here. And I kind of like that version of Han Solo where he's kind of dumb, but he means well. <laughs> yeah. The classic thing of him running after those stormtroopers and then yep, there's yep. more stormtroopers yes. and he has to run away from them. And it's like, okay, that's great. That's great comic stuff. Yeah. He's the comic relief that occasionally can get a shot off. Right. So he's, he's the Jack Burton basically of, exactly. of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause watching this again, I, I, it made me think of the, the original trilogy where like he just kind of screws everything up. He, the, the, the comlink thing. He just wants to sit there and let Ben sort everything out. He doesn't want to jump into the fight. He, he shoots Greedo. Wait a sec. Only after Greedo fired on him first. Come on. Yeah. That's, that's canonical. Oh, okay. All right. That's, that's, that's fine. Um, I honestly, I have no opinion one way or the other because so many people have so many strong opinions about it. Um, but then when he goes out and he faces down another roadie and Boba Fett, Jabba the Hutt, and like six other guys at his ship, he's like, hey, what can we do about this? It's all fine. He's not so tough anymore there. And then he wants to run away from from the Death Star after he was paid to do a job. And he runs away from the big fight at the end and then <laughs> sneak attacks three Imperials by flying out of the sun, basically, where they can't see him and then saves the day when there's three ships left. He's a kind of a coward. Yeah, the Jack Burton comparison is dead on. And I, I kind of had that same feeling when I was... Uh, when I was watching the, the newer, like, uh, Last Jedi and, and Force Awakens about, uh, is it, is it Finn? Yeah. Where, mm-hmm. where he's the same kind of character, where he kind of thinks he's the main character of that story. And he kind of fucks everything up every step of the way. His plotline in The Last Jedi amounts to a big nothing. But he, he thinks he's doing something important the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, the, the whole plot is just, uh, Finn's whole plot is for him to just realize, who he is it's not for any benefit of the story it's just to build him i feel like it's to build him up for the next one now sometimes it's to the detriment of the story so really the real heroes of this not even luke who went off to dagobah and was you know a little bit useless for bits and pieces here and there it's r2 and leia and chewy chewy was pretty competent which is pretty funny yeah because because chewy's all action leia's the brains and R2 is kind of the, the tech side of things. Everybody else just lucks out. Your comparison to Jack Burton really is very true to me, too, especially when he has that quote-unquote thermal detonator and he just goes <laughs> and, yes. and yeah. arms it. That I really appreciated. And that was like 
I'm like, okay, maybe this is a Lord and Miller thing because that is genuinely funny. And I was like, okay, this works for me. What's really funny, not funny, but really interesting to me is, uh, you get a little bit of, you get a little bit here and there. You have, um, the, the thermal detonator fake. You have Beckett wearing Lando's skiff guard armor, uh, disguise and all of that. All of the stuff from earlier in his life and the stories he probably told Chewie and Leia is what ends up saving him in the end. Yeah, yeah, I had this thermal detonator and I held everybody hostage and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Close and Leia's enough. like, Leia's probably looking at Chewie going, all right, we're not using that idiot's idea for uh, use a rock, right? We're going to get a real thermal <laughs> detonator in here. The illustrious Jabba bids you welcome and will gladly pay you the reward of 25000 you know, you know. 50,000, The mighty Jabba asks why he must pay 50,000. Hey, you know. Because he's holding a thermal detonator. <laughs> So that we meet Beckett and his crew, and there's this weird moment where they're like, okay, we're going to go attack, and then they go to attack, and then there's a fade out. And I'm just like, what the fuck was that fade out? Hmm. <laughs> and then I found that there's more of that in the uh, in the deleted scenes, but the deleted scene of that does not work at all because there's this other guy, like they, rather than being like the three main people and then some nameless people that are with them there's a fourth guy and he dies when they go out and do this attack and there's this like really sad moment when he dies and i'm just like what are you doing we don't know this guy at all random guy number three yeah exactly he's like the heavy gunner right right exactly yeah and it's just like the music swells and i'm just like what (laughs) this is completely unearned yeah so I'm kind of glad that they cut that scene out. Yeah, we we don't care about people we just met in movies. <laughs> How empathetic do they think we are? I mean, and he wasn't even like a star. You know, it's like, okay, well, if Woody Harrelson died a few seconds after we met him, maybe. I mean, wasn't like Ted Danson in uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan and died right away or somebody like that. And you're like, everybody, oh. everybody died right away in that movie. But it's like, okay, I know this guy and I have some investment because it's Ted Danson or whoever. It's it's Vin Diesel or I don't even know who. It's Jeremy Davies. And then it's like, oh, shit, he died. I, I like that guy. But random guy number four, who the fuck? But the only reason to show that their, that their big tough guy died is to rationalize bringing Han along when they take Chewie. But you don't need that. You just say, oh, well, they're coming together which is what they ended up doing. And I like this little crew of Danny Newton and John Favreau and, and Woody Harrelson. I mean, I like Woody Harrelson and mm. pretty much whatever he's oh, in. Yeah. It's nice that they finally got Texans in uh, a distant galaxy from long ago, <laughs> <laughs> even down to the name. He's like, everybody else has these, you know, fantastical star Warsy names, but he's just so oh, Tobias Beckett, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and Favreau is Rio. Like, come on. I get it. I get it. All right. 
I mean, yeah, they were really going for a Western vibe here. And there are, there are even shots where it's like between a guy's legs and stuff. And you're just like, Oh, okay. That's like a total Western showdown kind of shot and stuff. And I mean, the whole next sequence having a train heist. I mean, yes. that is right out of a Western. Yep. And if nothing else, man, it sets up some really good action sequences and actually have stakes on the table for this stuff i mean in in this fucking train heist two of the guys die i mean that's that's kind of the thing you're saying like han solo can't die chewbacca can't die so who else is going to die in this movie we need to know like anybody else's fair game if they're not showing up in episode four five or six you know <laughs> but all right so who's going to get it and it actually works for me when Favreau dies. It actually works for me when Val dies because we've known them for a little bit, even though I really miss Val because I really liked her character. I'm always happy to see Tandy Newton, so I was definitely a little bummed out when it went that way. But they gave you enough time to where at least it had a little bit of emotional weight to it. You could see, you know, like the bond she and Tobias had actually resonated on camera. And that's not easy to do in a time as short as they gave her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with Rio too, he was just, he was just having fun. He, he had, you knew he was dead as soon as he said, I'm going to open up a bar someplace warm. Like I get it. It's a war movie. You're two days to retirement. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it, Riggs. Uh, but he was, he, when he got hit, when he's talking and, and his voice is getting softer, that was, you look at, at Favreau and you see some of the stuff he did, uh, not the Marvel stuff, but it's like, I never knew he was such a huge Star Wars fan and he is totally into this and he's a great voice actor. Yeah, and I was just thinking, well, they probably already had him on, you know, on a contract with the Marvel movies, so they said, hey, hey, Favs, get over here. <laughs> we need you. But yeah, he, he he was all in for that relatively brief role, but as soon as I heard that voice, I was like, oh, I know what's in there, and then it was an alien. I was like, oh, oh, it was just John Favreau again. <laughs> From what I understand, he actually ad-libbed a lot of stuff bef- while they were recording his voice. I yeah. believe that. Yeah, I mean, when he was just like, blah, 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 my knock roast, I was like, okay, yeah, that's like a total Star Wars fanboy kind of thing to say, but that's pretty awesome. Sometimes it's a little much, but uh, I'm okay with it. The one thing I like about all these, all of these new Star Wars movies is um, all the different stormtroopers. You get all all different kinds, and I have to say, the range trooper, the one with the fur collar and the magnetized boots, that's that's a great design. That, that really is nice. Yeah, and those guys, man, they they weren't kidding around no. you know, with them <laughs> on, with those magnetized boots. And when the train starts to turn, I was just like, oh, fuck, this is, we are really playing for keeps here. They really crammed like everything that I like about Star Wars into one whole one whole sequence with with really cool looking helmets and, and armor and uh, my favorite robots, um, a different version of the probe droid, weird spaceships flying overhead and Emphis Nest's whole look is it's like an artist heaven just looking at that stuff. It's just a visual feast of weirdness. And it's awesome. Emphis Nest. Uh, the what, what we call them, like cloud riders, like those ships mm. that that she and her crew are on, they really remind me of like the speeder bikes from Return of the Jedi, but yep. modified. Oh yeah, and they just looked so cool. Oh yeah, like souped up hot rods. Yeah, it was it was nice because and and you could actually tell that 
they, we, they were kind of undoing years and years of Lucas work where it felt like a lot of, like, obviously there's CGI everywhere, but there, it felt like there were a lot of, a lot more physical items on this set than there were in a lot of the previous movies. It almost gave that feeling of, you know, how the original trilogy felt because it was a mix of practical in there with the, uh, with the digital at least. Yeah, and a lot of the effects looked so good. I mean, especially when they uh, end up going to uh, meet Lando and all of those creatures that are in there, they look fantastic. Uh, my favorite new alien is in that scene, Therm Scissor Punch. <laughs> that is <laughs> his name. name. And he's he's the giant lobster dude sitting right to Lando's left. That just sounds like one of... Uh... One of the names from the Space Mutiny episode of Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> <laughs> Roll fizzle beef. <laughs> it's just, it's so awesome because the more you think about it, the funnier it gets. Because obviously, if he's a lobster looking dude, he's named after a food that you use lobster with, with the Thermidor. But a scissor punch just sounds vicious or sexy, depending on whatever way you want to go with that but still could be both it could be but as he he's a great design he's just he's just kind of hanging out there he looks great that's one that they have not made a figure of that i would actually i would actually look forward to just because he's weird i like the dude in the spacesuit i really like him with the big hands and yeah the little head in the spacesuit yeah I mean, there's so many good character designs. The, the guy with all the eyeballs, he kind of reminded me of, uh, I can't remember the figure's name, but he had like the three eyes and he was on Jabba's skiff, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. like they went to town and just said, oh, why don't we put like 11 eyes on this guy? And I'd like to, it took me a while, but I didn't realize when they go to meet Lando and they're playing Sabacc, I didn't realize that when uh han is in the uh like the that that imperial place that we're talking about uh, on corellia that the little kids in the hallway are playing sabacc so oh. i was just like oh this is what they play on corellia or at least amongst this group because he acts i mean he does the perfect thing right like oh i've heard of it and he like mispronounces how you say the the game and stuff and which then fits with uh lando mispronouncing hand which also fits with uh billy d williams mispronouncing hand all those years later i was like okay that's kind of a nice nod there but that's but yeah. that's how you do it when when you're trying to when you're trying to 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 reference something else lando's response is basically i don't care and he just keeps doing it it's just a lot of times and because uh, i talk with my kids when we leave movies about like okay they talked about this did you notice this huge dump of information that you got i'm like all they had to do is explain it away with one sentence that could be done while moving along and that's exactly what it is it's just banter back and forth it's lando being a dick to han and han being a dick back but it it speaks to their relationship 30 years from then. And it, and that's, that was, that was a, that was like almost like a perfect scene for me. Yeah. They're, they're back and forth. is so good. The, the instant mutual respectful disdain they have for each other. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I love that. Um, in one of the, um, behind the scenes kind of thing, Donald Glover's like, why would I have any respect for a guy who wears brown coat over brown pants? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, look at the way that I'm dressed. There's yeah, Lando no way is I an respect intergalactic fashion icon. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> those fucking capes, man. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I hope good. Billy D got to keep all of those back in the day. 
Lando, he just gets humiliated over and over and over again in this movie. It's like I didn't realize until I was watching it again. It's just like, okay, yeah, like they use his cape to put out a fire. And like, <laughs> he's the butt of this joke. He's the butt of that joke. And it's just like, oh, okay. Like he's, he's not as cool as he wants to be. Like he pretends that, you know, oh, I keep my ship here for safekeeping, but they're actually breaking into an impound. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lando, Lando's the embodiment of fake it till you make it. This all just kind of boils down to, you know, somebody somebody does you wrong enough times over a long period of time, eventually you'll get that son of a bitch frozen in carbonite. <laughs> and Lando, it seems like through all the movies, he just ends up just associating with the wrong people until he gets with the rebellion in Jedi. And then he's no longer a punching bag because he's he gets the same crappy deal throughout solo that he gets from han uh from vader when han shows up and he he never comes out on top because he says he hates mining colonies and look at that he's running one leia and the wookiee must never again leave this city that was never a condition of our arrangement nor was giving han to this bounty hunter i have altered the deal pray i don't alter it any further this deal's getting worse all the time. Furthermore, I wish you to wear this dress and bonnet. This was never a condition of our I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal's getting worse all the time. Here is a unicycle. You will ride it wherever you go. What? I'm not riding the f***ing unicycle. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal is getting worse all the time. Also, you are to wear these clown shoes and refer to yourself as Mary. Oh. F*** you, man. I'm not doing it. I have altered the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. This deal is very fair, and I'm happy to be a part of it. So what do you guys think of Leet? Because I know a lot of people, sorry, L337. I know a lot of people had issues with L337. Femputer complains about having to follow her overlord and that she shouldn't have to go on this mission if she doesn't want to. It's such a weird character. I feel like that entire character may have been a Lord and Miller creation because it seems so over the top that that it could have been more from them than the, than, uh, the Kasdans. But I, I appreciated her in that I felt like she was almost a mockery of the outrage <laughs> that blew up when The Force Awakens hit, and they put girls in the lead role, and everyone acted like they were, you know, they were going to try to start some kind of revolution because you, you put a 20-year-old British girl in the lead of a Star Wars movie, and <laughs> they just took the idea of ridiculous, you know, militant over-empowerment and, and funneled it all through one character to make people realize how ridiculous their outrage sounded. <laughs> but also, she reminds me of a lot of my friends, so I, I, I was kind of feeling that character. <laughs> I really, I really liked her. I thought, I thought that the, just the look, the, the, I made myself, like she is a self-made robot, basically. She's got R2 legs for arms and all kinds of weird cobbled together stuff. But having watched Fleabag now after, you know, and getting to know her style of comedy, I really appreciate L3 even more now because I can see her through the robot. I didn't know her before this movie. Yeah, me neither. And I, I've been meaning to watch Fleabag just because I enjoyed her as a faceless robot yeah, <laughs> of yeah. all things, because like she goes all out with that performance. She's probably one of the more expressive characters in the movie. She's great. 
she reminded me a lot of Hermione from um, the Harry Potter series. Like, especially when Hermione finds out about the house elves and she starts like the whole house, house elf liberation army kind of <laughs> yep, thing. That's yep. right. That was one of my favorite parts in the whole movie is when she releases the, when she takes the restraining bolt off the one of them and she's like, congratulations, you're free. And, and he's like, you can tell the robot looks at her, the droid. He's like, now what? <laughs> But the whole freeing all the robots and they're dancing on the control panels and jumping around, they're robots. And obviously there's people in the costumes for some of them, but it's like they're all free. That's the happiest thing. That's awesome. And it's just it's just so much fun to watch that and not be angry at movies all the time. Please stop doing this film. You're embarrassing yourself. It is not a good gimmick for this droid to have. It doesn't make sense. Fighting for social rights isn't character. You're not making a point about society with any kind of subtlety, and you're embarrassing Star Wars even more. My favorite throwaway moment in the whole movie, actually. Like, it's just such a quick moment, but I, I think it's just her and uh, Lando sitting in the, the cockpit and I think he asks her if he can get her anything else, and she just says, equal rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've had that conversation a lot lately. <laughs> I also like that the noises that she makes are the noises that the Millennium Falcon will make after she gets introduced into the Millennium Falcon system. It is really funny to think about having her, L3, talk to 3PO and it is, it, you know, she's just like, would you just shut the fuck up and 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 fix this part? This is what it is. That's that's kind of how I felt with C-3PO my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> like, the way people blew up about about uh, Jar Jar Binks when episode one came out, that's how I felt about C-3PO my whole childhood. Just, like, calm down, take your Ritalin. <laughs> I never understood why, as a as a as a little kid, why we were supposed to be okay with three PO kicking R two and saying basically, yeah. why don't you fuck off in that direction? Yeah, they were a weird, a weird abusive relationship. Yeah, but they and, were also our first gay robot couple. So, well, true. Even when even when three PO says, "Don't get technical with me," like even as a little kid, you're like, "Well, technically, humanoids would live where there's shade." You big dumb robot. 3PO really comes off as pretty stupid in the first movie. Yeah, when you go back and watch The Hidden Fortress and see the way that those two guys interact with each other, it's just like, okay, I can understand where C-3PO and R2 were coming from, but it's easier to swallow when it's two people doing that to each other than, you know, like if you yeah, you watch uh, Laurel and Hardy and there's like some abuse going on in there as well, but it's like, okay, you know, Hardy or uh, Stan Laurel always kind of gets the upper hand by the end of the thing. Like he's the one who can do these magical things and then it blows up in Oliver Hardy's face. And it's kind of that same relationship here, but not enough stuff blows up in C-3PO's face. Right, right. And we're supposed to feel bad at the end when R2 gets blown up and 3PO says, oh, if you need any of my parts, it's like, no, he's a Toyota. You're a Ford. It's not going to work. Like, please take all the parts. Start with the voice box. <laughs> yeah. Nice try at being sincere. You, you, you knew this wasn't going to happen. I don't know, but R2, R2 eventually, you know, is a hero of the rebellion and 3PO's just standing there. So that's just, fine. Just a clinger. Yeah. I do like the way that Han interacts with uh, 3PO in Empire Strikes Back. It's quite possible this asteroid is not entirely stable. Not entirely stable. 
I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Chewie, take the professor in the back and plug him into the hyperdrive. Going back to the Western thing, it's just like, okay, well, they're trying to get the gold or whatever off of the train and it doesn't work out. So then they have to go back to the, the, the boss of the ranch and that's Dryden Voss here. I, yeah. I think he's a great villain. I think he is a really compelling villain. And I like how he's just so matter of fact, where it's just like, Oh, and the guys, if you fail this, I'm going to have to kill you. And I was just like, okay, I appreciate that so much. And the, the way that he interacts with Kira and that he has his hands all over her. And it's just like, this is my property. Just there's a lot of good physical acting going on in here. And I mean, yeah, like we said before, I mean, even in shitty movies, he's pretty good. Uh, Yeah. And (laughs) yeah, he's been, he's elevated those. Like I remember pretty much only making it through, was it priest because of him? Mm -hmm. That's the movie. That's exactly the movie I was thinking of. (laughs) Yeah. There was the back-to-back priest and legion. I remember both of those and he kind (laughs) of, he kind of kept those afloat. Not by much, but still. <laughs> <laughs> kind of to the point where I mix those movies up quite a bit. I think head. they were even the same director. So, yeah, it's really easy to mix them up. <laughs> that guy just wanted to do weird supernatural things with him and not make a lot of money doing it. Now they've got the gold and they have to go back to uh, the the bad guy. But then they finally find out that the reason they need the gold is because basically Crimson Dawn is a terrorist organization and they've done all these horrible things. And that gets told to them by Enfys Nest. Who you're telling me is a person, correct? Right, right. <laughs> Just so we can clarify that one more time. But, oh, and I forgot the Kessel Run. There's the Kessel Run mm. in there, which I don't necessarily understand why when you're in the cold vacuum of space, you have to worry about something on your ship getting warm. Like, if you just kept it more towards the hull, I would think that it would be okay, <laughs> but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> like, this galaxy is far, far away. Physics are different there. <laughs> so, what I was figuring um, to get a little geeky for a second is that there's some kind of uh, magnetic stasis field in the vault or something oh um because usually that's kind of what it is isn't it oh we're keeping it safe inside this uh glowy blue thing so don't take it out or plot (laughs) 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 because i mean they need some way to force them to have to uh you know, explain a throwaway line in another movie. One that didn't even make any scientific sense, but okay. (laughs) That drives me fucking crazy. I mean, like, the same people that were just like, finally, Rogue One closes this massive plot hole that has been with us for 30, 40, 50 years. Oh my god, this has kept me awake every single night. (laughs) Why they would allow a thermal exhaust port to blow up the entire thing. Thank god there's a two and a half hour movie to explain to me why that is. A two and a half hour movie with zero fleshed out characters. And one good scene with Darth Vader at the very end. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Which doesn't even make sense when you look at that Darth Vader versus... A new hope, Darth Vader, and you're like, that guy just got done murdering all those people? I don't understand this. He's not even winded. 
uh, you know, some it's it's an art. <laughs> yeah, some people just have it. And, and honestly, if I can completely kind of sidetrack, I remember when they started announcing, okay, we're gonna do the main numbered episodes, and then we're gonna do these side stories. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh, this is it. This is time for. They said they're gonna do Rogue One. They're gonna get the plans to the Death Star. It, and I, my first thought was like, finally, not just another fucking. Star Wars movie, we're going to have, like, Ocean's Eleven in space. We're going to get a heist movie. And it it was nothing like that. And I kind of feel like I sort of got more of that from Solo with the multiple jobs they're pulling off in this uh, than I ever got close to in Rogue One. Yeah, I really think that he's kind of playing a Danny Ocean in this. That's what I wanted. I was, when, like I said, you know, different genres in the same universe – that was what I'd been waiting for, and I felt like they were never going to even try that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I liked about, like, Ant-Man, where it's like, okay, it's like a heist movie uh, disguised as a Marvel movie. Okay, that works. Yeah. I mean, they kind of suckered me when they used, was it music from Coffee when they were playing <laughs> the job? I mean, that kind of won me over anyway. <laughs> and, you know, like Thor being an all-out comedy. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah this works, especially yeah. after the two dour <laughs> well, ones the, before. The first one had humor to it. That second one... I don't even remember it. No, you could put a gun against my head. I'd be like, ah, there was red stuff. Mm. Maybe. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I have not seen a movie where Christopher Eccleston plays a major role, not like his 28 weeks later role, but where he plays a, a main character or a villain that, where, where the movie's good. If we're going way back with Danny Boyle, Shallow Grave is really good, but oh, that's, that's true. That's a ways mm. back. Yeah. Yeah. Forgot and about that's that. an ensemble. I mean, that's True. those three characters really bringing it. But I just feel like that movie gets slept on now, so I had to mention it. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Yeah, because I'd rather watch that than yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone cut off their arm in yesterday? I probably will if I try to sit through it. I just, oh, those working in a movie theater and having to see that trailer over and over again. Like, oh. I'm okay with it until Ed Sheeran tells them to rename the song Hey Dude. That is one of the most painful things I've ever seen come out of an Oscar Oscar winning director. <laughs> I think winning. I'm pretty sure he won something. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, yeah probably for Slumdog Millionaire. That's right. That one best picture. That's right. A friend of mine today on Facebook was saying, imagine you woke up in a world tomorrow and no one knew who Paul Lind was. And I was like, that's a better movie. <laughs> that's a better movie. That is, oh man. Who's going to be the center square? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trying to explain that to people. <laughs> if, we're, if, we're, if we're talking entertainment wise, I'd like to work up, well, uh, sorry, wake up in a world where no one knows who Armand White is. <laughs> I'm totally happy with that. <laughs> every t- except for you every time no, well no and then I, you can I write could... all of his reviews and get all the credit <laughs> oh. i i i take medication to make sure that i don't feel <laughs> that level of of confrontation i just i couldn't do it like i would my brain would explode like how do you how do you rate a kid's movie terrible i don't understand Something's wrong with that man. He hates everything. That's not true. He likes the things he's not supposed to like. That is true. That Almost is true. exclusively. It's really weird to go down his list and see red on one side, green on the other, and then flipped. And like he very rarely agrees with popular. But Yeah, I, I, it got to the point where I wonder how many of these movies he's actually watched. Well, 
Yeah. If you read some of the reviews, clearly none. Going back to your point from earlier about L337 and the way that she was kind of defying expectations by being that overly empowered type character and like all of these fanboys who are just like losing their shit about Daisy Ridley and <laughs> uh, what's her name from um, uh, Rogue One. Mm-hmm. And then what do we do? We make Enfys Nest actually a girl. There's a twist. Turns out the Marauders are led by a five-year-old ginger twat, and they're also the good guys now. Yeah, nobody complained about that. Nobody complained, and I really like that, and I like that this is a matriarchal thing, because she said, before me, my mother was doing this. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I loved the reveal. My kids, my, my two girls, they were they were so happy to see, you know, a badass girl standing up to all the dudes and Wookiees. And that's okay, but no purple hair ladies in space. No, that is not allowed. <laughs> Why doesn't she just tell him the plan? <laughs> because no one in space understands the chain of command. You're a fucking grunt. Go sit down and shut up. Exactly. You were just demoted, you dumbass. Get away from me. Yeah, and I was reminded of another Western slash samurai film when uh, she's telling the story of Crimson Dawn. It really reminded me a lot of The Seven Samurai, except it ended a lot worse than The Seven Samurai did when they <laughs> cut out all their tongues, for God's sakes. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough, man. Well, you got to make them really despicable real fast. I mean, once you see who's running it, and if you've watched all the, the Clone Wars and Rebels stuff and all that, you know that it's going to be absolutely ruthless, but not everybody watched that. So you have to, you have to, you have to uh, go with the, the common, not lowest, but the common denominator for everybody and just assume nobody knows that that character's still around. I will be honest. I heard rumors that Darth Maul was still around and I just kept saying, how the fuck is he still alive? When the last time I saw him, he was cut in two in 1997. Mm. Sorry, 1999. Uh, you know what they say, apparently, pretty recently, no one's ever really gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're really going to lean on that line. His um, revival in, in the Clone Wars series was, um, was, was pretty well done. When he's found, he's basically insane and, and just babbling to himself on a junk planet. And he kind of forgets who he is and what he can do. And he rebuilds himself, basically, literally. It, over the course of the seasons, it, it works. But uh, as a pop-up surprise moment, I can definitely see why people would have issue with that. Like, I, I would consider myself, like, a a dedicated casual fan. I'll mm. watch, like, all the main movies and I'll play a bunch of the games. But, you know, I don't really get time to watch the TV shows or anything like that. So, I've heard tell, you know without getting into the expanded universe, then maybe he came back around. But yeah, it, it came way out of left field here uh, for, for me. It was kind of cool, especially because I'd heard stories of people that saw test screenings of The Phantom Menace, where there was apparently the original cut. Uh, he was whole going down that shaft. He, he did not get separated. Yep, I saw I saw one of those. It was the midnight show the night before, and then I went with the uh, same group of friends Wow. Um, the next day. And apparently they had gotten a new last reel. They hadn't finished the effects. Because when he fell apart into two pieces, we all looked at each other like, this is the same movie, right? We we are all seeing this. Well, so. what happened was uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, showed up to the theater himself <laughs> <laughs> and walked up to the projection room. 
<laughs> Every single one of the like three thousand yeah. screens that it played on. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I never had heard that before. Yeah, I can't find any footage of it anywhere. So I'm glad you said that because I'll tell you, for like at least fifteen years I've felt like a crazy person. No, I I've heard about this, so it's it's definitely not just you. Good. Good. <laughs> I know that i definitely blocked out the first time i saw the phantom menace so i was one of those people walking out of the theater going oh that was that was good that was that was fine good <laughs> yeah that was good wasn't it tell me it was good tell me i'm good tell please <laughs> daddy all the parts were there they had lightsabers they were in space <laughs> they uh they wore those kind of cloak you know robe things it was all there <laughs> somebody said i have a bad feeling about this that brings me to um one ron howard part that in my head even when i saw it in the theater i will just say out loud every time han turns to everybody it turns to kira and he goes i have a good feeling about this yeah. and i i hear ron howard say he shouldn't <laughs> right. i don't know why it's just one oh, of those things man yeah i kind of want that now <laughs> <laughs> Are you making an Arrested Development yeah. reference? <laughs> That's uh, okay. what it feels like to me. <laughs> Meet Darth Vader. He's upset because his daughter, Princess Leia, stole his secret plans. I want to know what happened to the plans. I don't know what you're talking about. She actually did. Fortunately, Leia's droids landed in the backyard of Luke Skywalker, who found her secret message. Who is she? She's beautiful. She's his sister. And, yeah, we have Darth Maul having to turn on his lightsaber for whatever reason. What the fuck, man? It's just so you remember. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah, he's got that two-bladed he's one. He's got the double-sided one, the one that nobody ever else really had. He's that one guy with the face. <laughs> but here, in this one, they show, and it's my nerdy part again, they're showing you that it's uh, an Inquisitor's lightsaber that he won from defeating them while he was uh, tricking Ezra in the Rebels series. Not even Cena is a match for the limited edition double-edged lightsaber from Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. This is the stuff I keep in my head instead of how does my 401k work? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you're the right person to have on this episode. <laughs> yeah, at least it's information you can share with people. My yeah. my limited knowledge of the filmography of Gene Simmons isn't going to work as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's not limited, but it's limited to like the five people that care. <laughs> <laughs> so that's you, Gene, and three other people. Well, Paul, obviously. <laughs> yeah, and then there's probably you, Mike, and Heather. That's yep. all, that's it. That's all of us. <laughs> that's quite a circle. We should all get together sometime, paint each other up. We haven't really talked about Kira, but Kira, she's there. I like that she tries to come up with diplomatic solutions to things mm. and that, you know, she even like kind of gets in on some of the plans and stuff. And that even like the very first time we see her with Han and they're at the spaceport and the way that he says to her earlier, like this could be worth what 60 to 70,000 credits or whatever. And then the way that she's like, this is worth 80,000 credits. It's like, okay, so she's kind of a scammer and stuff. And we'll get that more. And it works that she, you know, works with Dryden Voss in this area and that he's, she's almost like his conciliary. Mm. 
Yeah, and it looked like you had a nice uh, conflict of character with her where she's trying to uh, stay on Voss's good side, but also doesn't want to totally show Han that she's gone all the way over to the gang, to the mafia or whatever. To the dark side, almost? Yeah, I was trying to avoid saying that. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. She almost represents kind of a character type more than an actual fleshed out character compared to a lot of what there is in the movie. But considering I made it through like three episodes of game of Thrones and checked out, I I still find Amelia Clark, like a really, like she has a really good presence to her. She feels very natural in a way that I didn't feel like Daisy Ridley's fine. I didn't particularly care for Felicity Jones's performance in rogue one. I I feel like out of the young white British girls that they keep casting in these, I, I feel like she's the one that I enjoy the most as a presence, but yeah, they don't give her as much to do as everyone else. Mm. Really haven't watched Game of Thrones, so I only know her from this and Terminator Genesis, where she doesn't have a presence, really. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't mind her in that, but I, I feel like I'm probably an apologist for that movie, so I, I that's one that's hard to defend. <laughs> when the new trailer came out, which I haven't watched, I was just like, I don't remember the last movie very much at all. <laughs> doesn't matter, because guess what? It didn't happen. Again. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Because now Sarah Connor is alive again. Spoiler. Okay, I didn't realize that she died. Yeah, and they 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 announced it in the third one. Oh yeah, that's where they're keeping all the guns in her like fake uh, casket. Why do I remember this? Didn't she have <laughs> Didn't she have leukemia? She died of leukemia. Yeah. From, uh, and then the TV series jumped them to modern day for what the TV series was, which avoided her getting leukemia from whatever it was that gave it to her. And then it, then it was, um, what's her face? Lena Headley from, uh, also, yeah. From Game of Thrones. From Game of yeah. Thrones. <laughs> yeah. So the Terminator timeline is worse than a Chris Claremont comic. So I don't know. Ouch. Well, it is. I mean, it's all messed up, but I will watch it because that's what you do. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it'll be there and I do like Mackenzie Davis. I want to see her get hmm. paid. Friend of mine, friend of mine, a long time ago, um, put things into perspective uh, for another person he was arguing with, and it, and it just stuck with me. They were complaining about stuff in Terminator uh, Two and Three, and the only complaint I have about Terminator Two is the liquid metal Terminator going back in time when it's organic material only through the time machines. But whatever, because um, <laughs> that I mean, you set up the rules and then you break them for your own universe in the next movie. You just you, that's not some big no no. <laughs> but the other stuff it was like little tiny plot holes and stuff and my friend turned to him and said hey it's a movie about time traveling robots <laughs> yeah. like okay that's that's some good perspective if uh if it's a ridiculous premise you can let stuff go oh hey there's a giant azathoth hanging out inside a black hole whatever outrun it Han. <laughs> I had a problem with the Terminator TV show when they were talking all about blood types and they were trying to give a, uh, they, they were saying like, oh, well, this guy has to be this guy's father because he's got this type of blood and blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, that's not how that's it not, works. They, <laughs> that, that's not a fingerprint. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, that's not how it goes. Like, Ooh. I can draw you a Punnett square if you want. Yikes. <laughs> but don't worry, guys. Joss Whedon's a visionary. 
You can't do you can't do anything wrong, kids. My friends keep telling me. <laughs> oh, have they seen Dollhouse? <laughs> Did anybody? I tried. I tried. And yeah, and we we haven't talked too much about Woody Harrelson's character, who I think is really very compelling. Um, I kind of wish he was more of a mentor to Han Solo, and then it would have made it a little bit more shocking when Han shoots him at the end. I I kind of wish that that had happened, but I was okay with how things worked out with those two. Yeah, you you can still feel he has a weird tenderness for him in a way that he probably you know envisions the younger version of himself in what Han is and how reluctant he is to bring him along in the first place. That's the thing, like I was saying earlier about like the Tandy Newton characters, they were good with setting up bonds without having to hammer every single one of them home. You're like a son to me, kid. Yeah, if there was just one line of, you know, you remind me of myself when I was your age, like that, okay, check out. So apparently the novelization goes on to show the Cloud Riders pass on the coaxium to Saw, Guerrera, and Jin Erso, who, if memory serves, they were part of Rogue One. But those fucking names, man, I couldn't yeah, stand those I rem- names. All I remember is the names, because they didn't have any fucking character. <laughs> all I remember was Saw, Guerrero. That was, that was Forrest Whitaker, right? Yeah. And I just assumed that him taking that role was like... Him going, well, maybe if I do a Star Wars movie, they'll forget about Battlefield Earth. Hashtag never forget. <laughs> <laughs> never forgive, never forget. And is Jin Erso, is that the That's girl? the main character, yeah. Okay. The, the one who, who does nothing for the first half of the movie, and then halfway through the movie takes on the leadership role, and it's really confusing. <laughs> mm. Have you guys ever had a Jin Erso before? It's very refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the visual effects supervisor of Solo, Rob Bredow, right after these brief messages. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime-slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series, Tales from the Crypt. Here's what a rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Tuning into Sci Fi TV. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special supernatural focused bonus. Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Fox, a family of podcasts for the genre loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel. Hi, everyone, welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at tuningintosci fi TV.com. 
Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. I want to talk to you a lot about Solo, a Star Wars story, but I am very curious how you got into the field of special effects and and kind of made your way through it. Even when I was going to high school, once I learned that there were people who worked in uh, on computers and made pictures for a living, I was pretty convinced that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I was fortunate to go to a very technical high school where there was a lot of access to computers and computer programming, and I always liked art and creating things, especially when it was kind of at that intersection between art and technology. That was really intriguing to me for for my whole life. So as soon as I realized there were people who did computer graphics full-time, I was like, oh, that seems to tick all the boxes for me. So even before I was finished with high school, I had managed my way to uh, an internship at a computer graphics company called Vision Art Design and Animation. And I was working there part-time through high school and then uh, while I was going to college as well, really learning the craft of visual effects and uh, computer graphics. So it was pretty exciting for me. What were some of those early gigs like for you? Everybody starts with doing some flying logos and learning about polygons and shading models. <laughs> Especially back then, this was you know, 1990, 1991. The software wasn't anywhere near as sophisticated as it is today. You know, You had to have some strong technical skills just to make the software work. And if you wanted to do anything particularly sophisticated, you probably had to do a little bit of programming too. So I remember watching an animation that was done quite a few years ago called Flock of Birds, which is a really impressive animation that was done by this team at Symbolics, I believe. I was like, I want to be able to do something like that. But you had to write a lot of the software to be able to do birds flocking around. So that was some of my early work, flying logos and birds flying and those kind of things. And then eventually... I got to work on a feature film, but that was many years later. Uh, and my first big feature film was Independence Day. What were some of those movies that really lit a fire under you? I always have enjoyed, of course, uh, the Star Wars films. And that was what kind of got me excited about this industry. I remember looking at those uh, shots of Dennis Muren and Phil Tippett uh, posing the ad and shooting those, those stop-motion cameras for those shots on Empire Strikes Back. And once I realized that this is people were making these kind of shots this way, I was really excited about someday being able to do something like that. So when the opportunity came to talk about working on Solo, it was a pretty incredible experience. Well, what's that like? How do you get assigned to a project like that? So in this case, I had the fortune of having worked with the original directors of the film, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, on their previous film. It was actually their first feature film, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And when they started working on Solo, they had asked Kathy Kennedy and, and me if there was any way I could work on the show. I was doing had some other roles here at Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic. I was working on our immersive entertainment area, making some VR pieces and directing some VR short films. And they reached out and, and Kathy Kennedy and then the person who runs Lucasfilm here, Linwin Brennan, said, Yeah, we can probably figure out a way to make that work. That was my first introduction to the film. 
I was realizing when that happened, I'm like, you know what? We're going to be shooting on the Millennium Falcon cockpit. So I'm going to be in the Millennium Falcon probably for days at a time making this movie. And little did I know that was definitely going to be the case. It was pretty amazing. So what inspired you to capture this as a book and be able to put that out that way as well? What I realized early on in the production was that very often I was the only person in the room who had a camera. Um, I carry my camera around with me pretty much everywhere. And um, on this film, I was taking lots of pictures early in pre-production. And there were some pretty incredible things happening uh, when we were in this planning phase for this movie. So I started to assemble kind of a nice collection of photos. So I took a lot of reference photos for our visual effects teams, and I shipped those images back to ILM, which is around the world, and the artists around the world use those as references for starting to build things uh, and make nice, seamless transition, right, from the things that are practical on set and the digital work we do in the post-production phase. So that was my primary reason for having the camera around my neck all the time. But then I noticed there were all these really nice moments happening. So I was, in addition to capturing a lot of reference, I was also getting a few nice shots here and there. And it wasn't too many months into the production of the film that I realized that this collection was going to be pretty fun. So I put together some of the maybe 20 or 30 photos and I showed Kathy Kennedy on the side of the set. I'm like, hey, some of these are kind of fun. So I thumbed through some of these and she's like, oh, we should definitely do something with, uh, with these photos. And I said, yeah, I was thinking maybe I could make like a, a book for the crew or something just as a thank you for everybody's participation on the film. And she's like, well, if you're going to do a book, let's do a book. And she connected me to Lucasfilm Publishing and the Abrams team who were very enthusiastic about this idea of telling a behind-the-scenes story from a particular point of view, from my point of view, from the very beginning of the show to the very end. It went from being an idea to being a reality in a pretty short period of time. Did you basically have to redo your work two times while this movie was going on? From the standpoint of uh, putting together the book, all the photos and all the stories were you know, completely the same. From the standpoint of making the movie, we had the director change to Ron Howard, and uh, we definitely... You know, when he came on the film, there was definitely this an opportunity to look at the whole movie again and figure out exactly what Ron Howard's version of this film was going to be. So there was, you know, there was plenty of work to do to get that movie done, especially considering we were still on the original schedule. So we had a lot of work to do to get to that end before the release date. They really had to be a team effort led by Ron Howard and uh, Pietro Scalia, who was the editor and the visual effects team, which is uh, Industrial Light and Magic, and several of our other partners who were helping to bring the visual effects to life. Everybody really had to be on the same page, both creatively and operationally, just technically moving all that around to make sure we could get that done in the time that was remaining. Well, I'm sure that things like you know all the pre-work that you did going out and shooting the dolomites and getting all of those, those things visualized, that that doesn't have to change. But it feels like more of the live action changes, or does some of your world and the visual effects actually change as well? Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do is actually make sure we're tying together the real world practical locations into the digital visual effects. And then, of course, as a VFX supervisor, especially on a big movie, one of your responsibilities is to make sure you're giving uh, the director as much creative flexibility as possible. And so that's actually just kind of part of the job. So our job, for example, as you raise the Dolomites, uh, we went out and photo modeled hundreds of square miles of these incredible mountains. We also went out and photographed with the Alexa camera on the nose of the helicopter. We photographed the plates as they were planned in the pre-visualization phase. 
And a lot of those plates made their way perfectly into the movie. But if we needed another angle or if something needed to change, we had the flexibility to create that digitally as needed. So the final movie is a nice mix. There's a lot of real photography from the actual Dolomites that we shot. And there's a lot of shots that we either had really good reference for or we created digitally to stitch in those moments in between. I'm sure it's got to be somewhat difficult, but also somewhat rewarding being in your world. Because if you're doing your job right, I don't notice that you're doing your job. Yeah, that is the fun part about visual effects, especially when you're able to get the right mix between the practical effects and the digital effects. And hopefully people don't know which is which. So one example of that is the explosion, the giant coaxium explosion at the end of the train heist sequence. People might suspect that's a digital effect, but we actually shot a miniature explosion underwater on a scale model of that mountain. That mountain is actually Trey Cheme in the Dolomites. And we shot it at high speed, I think 20,000 frames per second. So an incredibly high speed camera with all these special lights poured on it. And the explosion itself only took like one one hundredth of a second for the interesting part of the explosion to happen. But by capturing it at such a high frame rate, we could get the speed we needed to put in the film, as you see in the final picture. So you take a shot of the mountain, or many, many shots of the mountain. There's a computer model of it built. Is there an actual practical like clay model version of that as well? That's right. We actually... In real life, picked the mountain that we wanted to blow up. We flew around it to tens of thousands of photos to make a digital 3D file that represented every little nook and cranny of the mountain. And then we flew again with the camera on the nose of the chopper to get that background plate, right? The photography that was the baseline that was showing that moment with the sun rising and this beautiful photography of the real world location. Then we took that 3D model we had made. We made a 3D printout of the mountain, which is only about eight inches tall. And we tied a little charge about the size of a firecracker into the right spot of the mountain where the charge was going to go off. We sunk that whole thing in a little aquarium that was probably about a 100-gallon aquarium, pointed the special camera at it, filled it up with clean water, and set off this charge. It was over in one one-hundredth of a second. And then we took that footage that we had shot and then digitally composited that into the plate. And of course, then when you watch the final shot, you notice there's a bunch of other details in there like the mountain collapsing and everything, which was all created digitally by the ILM team for the final result. So really like a team effort of practical and digital components to bring that final result to life. With each successive film that you are doing, is there yet another new technique or something that is possibly revolutionizing your own industry as you go along? Yeah, some of the most fun things that we're getting to do right now is we're taking our techniques that we've done in the computer during post-production, and we're moving those into pre-production and making it something that could be directly photographed during production. The example of that on Solo was for the Falcon cockpit. We had a lot of activity in the cockpit that was going to happen during this show. I think there was 20 pages of lines that the actors had that were going to take place inside the cockpit, which is a whole lot for a very small set. You know, That could be up to 20 minutes of the movie. So when we were photographing that, it was my job to figure out, you know, whether we wrap that in blue screen or green screen and put everything in in post, or could we use more of an old school technique? And that's what we decided to do for this movie. We actually created a wraparound screen that we put around the outside of the cockpit, and we had projectors behind that screen that were projecting an image on the back of that screen that transmitted through. So when you sat in the cockpit, 
and the actors push the Millennium Falcon into hyperspace, you could actually see hyperspace completely enveloping you and wrapping around the cockpit. And the camera could actually directly photograph this, and we could put it straight into the movie. So that is taking a very old-school technique called rear projection and making it modern with the latest digital projectors and the latest digital visual effects. But doing all that visual effects work before we shoot so you can see everything all at once in camera. So that sort of nice interaction you get between the actors and the things that are happening outside the window and all the nice lighting and everything that you get inside the cockpit that was made possible by uh, this technique, which is, again, an old technique that we modernized for this film. How do the actors react to that the first time they see it? Uh, That was a pretty fun story, actually. In fact, Ron Howard said, you know, I've got an idea. Let's do the hyperspace thing. Let's not tell the actors. So we, we had the actors in there for the very first rehearsal. It was Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge sitting in the front seat, the rest of the cast and the rest of the cockpit. And at the end of the scene, they pushed the hyperspace lever forward, and the stars, which had just been sitting there static on this wall, they streaked in the hyperspace, and you get that familiar blue tunnel. And they just freaked out. The cast just started screaming. (laughs) They're like, whoa! And I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge said, we're really going into hyperspace. And then when they finally like quieted down, everybody stopped laughing and everything. Uh, I think I heard it was it was Donald Glover, actually, who kind of leaned over and they were all micro had their microphones on. And I could hear through my headset that I was listening in. Donald Glover says, this is the coolest thing I have ever done, <laughs> which was pretty awesome. Yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. So for him to say that was a pretty nice compliment. I was so surprised when I was reading that some of the actors faces were put onto their stunt doubles or the stunt actors after uh, in post. That was just amazing. I never would have suspected that. Yeah, one of the things we got to do on this film was that big action sequence that takes place in Dryden's office towards the end of the film. And uh, the actors did do some of their own stunts, but there were a lot of moves that the stunt players did instead and did an incredible job with that. And then the actors were game to give us reference of what they looked like doing those actions. So we came back and photographed the, the principal actors doing those same actions. And then we either were able to take the faces from the actors and paste it on the stunt doubles, or we made digital versions depending on the shot to create that final illusion. And hopefully, you know, no one has any idea that some of those shots are stunt people because you can see their face and they look just like the actors. Did I hear right too that with some of like the laser blasts and stuff, you were adding those in as the action is happening? Yeah. So when we were in the cockpit, um, we actually had a fully interactive projection system. So if we wanted to have blasts coming from the TIE fighters behind the Falcon, we could add those in interactively. And in fact, Bradford Young would direct whether he wanted them coming from behind the camera or in front of the camera to get the kind of lighting and the interactive flashes that he wanted to get on the actor's face for the various moments throughout the sequence. How is it these days to actually create like a, a blaster blast, like a, from a, a handgun type of thing? You know, you had that amazing uh, escape sequence uh, before they go on the, the Kessel Run when they're getting the coaxium and, and going back to the Falcon to take off. And there's so much action happening there. I mean, is it just the old school way of actors with guns going pew, pew kind of thing? It basically is. Um, The actors start out with their guns, and of course, they're doing a little bit of recoil on the set, hopefully not too much. Some of the guns had practical charges that would go off or practical lights, uh, but most of them didn't. Most of that was added in post-production. We actually have a tool here at ILM 
which is called the Pew tool for putting in that blaster fire. And there's a lot of attention paid to the length of the trail and the brightness of the streak to make sure it feels like an authentic Star Wars Pew, which we put a lot of detail into that. And I was amazed, you know, you look at even going back to 1999 with a character like Jar Jar Banks, who is fully computer animated, and then you look at L337 and part practical, part computer generated, and just 100% seamless. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's fun to have a character come to life like that. And for somebody like C.B. Waller-Bridge to be game, to wear that practical suit and give us that kind of performance, she really drove every aspect of the movement of that character. And then I think the final result being a hybrid of a real suit and all those CG replacements really helps make it feel very, very physical. And of course, the fact that Donald Glover and other actors can just fully interact with that suit, including grab it and push it around and do those kind of things, just helps sell the illusion uh, even better. Does she have to come back in and loop all of her lines and then get that computer effect added to her? Yeah, I think they did use some production dialogue, meaning dialogue that was shot on set because it was just so good and worked perfectly. But she also had the flexibility since she didn't have a traditional lip sync mouth. Uh, they could change her lines uh, late into post-production. And Phoebe came back a few times to uh, punch things up and try different ideas. And then Ron Howard and the editors could pick their favorite uh, Phoebe lines uh, for L3 to say throughout the film. There must have been so much pressure on Ron Howard, I mean, uh, as well as everybody else. But coming in and just kind of taking over in such a quick manner and, and you know, writing the ship or, or driving in a new direction, how was he to work with? It was a joy to work with Ron Howard. There are few directors in the industry who are as experienced as him. And um, as you've probably seen, he's just a super nice guy as well. So getting to work with him, getting to benefit from his years of experience, and then also, I just felt very, very privileged that he invited us into his creative process. He really welcomed ideas from everyone all the way through the visual effects team. It was a real collaboration between visual effects and editorial and Ron Howard uh, to bring the movie together. So I was very fortunate to get to be part of the creative process from the beginning of the film all the way through the end. And and Ron Howard was, was fantastic. I think very few directors could come into as complicated of a project as this and and make it great in the time that he had. I think he did it really. It was It was really fun to get to work with him in that way. Of all the things in the film, what are you the most proud of, even if it's not something that we can see? The coaxium explosion at the end of the train high sequence is a really nice moment just because there's a combination of that practical element and all those really nice digital effects that integrates it in really nicely. Thinking of the train high sequence specifically, that was a pretty complicated sequence. It had a lot of story points. Uh, we were actually going to kill off a couple of really likable characters. Um, we had to set up this relationship between Han and Woody's character and make sure that that felt believable and strained throughout the sequence. So we had a lot of story points to get through, and I had been working on that sequence uh, for a really long time in pre-visualization and all the way as we were shooting it. And to see that sequence come together uh, clearly and nicely, and the action was really reading, thanks to the nice collaboration between the editorial departments and visual effects, that was a nice collaboration between our team and visual effects, where we had done a lot of pre-planning. We had put a lot of focus on what the angles would be and matching against the live-action photography that we shot in the Dolomites from the helicopter, um, and also the, the director of photography, Bradford Young, who had this idea that if he was going to have to shoot on a soundstage, 
He didn't want to have to try to simulate the sun because it's really hard to get a sun in a soundstage. It just never feels very real. So he said, let's do this pre-dawn sequence and let's figure out a way to light this. It's going to make it really believable. So hopefully the final result is completely seamless. Some was shot on location, some was shot in a soundstage, and then uh, industrial light and magic artists uh, stitched it all together into one uh, one whole. Well, you said collaboration, and that really comes through in your book as just all of the different voices of so many of the people that are on set, behind the scenes, just all of these people coming together with one vision and creating something that so many hands have a part of. That's right. And that's really the fun of filmmaking, um, to see all of these different expertises come together and getting to work with these amazing costume designers and uh, people creating incredible props and the director of photography and all the different heads of departments, the production designers, being able to make that as much of a cohesive team as possible is really fun. Because visual effects is such a big part of these Star Wars films, you know, I had the, the pleasure of getting to work very closely with all these different teams. That was a real blast. I am very curious what you're working on now. Now my job is to help run Industrial Light and Magic. So I'm responsible for our efforts globally. So I get to work with our creative directors and our visual effects supervisors, primarily focused on the creative aspects of what we do here at ILM, that early phase of these productions where we're getting all these movies started. So that includes all the Star Wars movies and everything that Lucasfilm is working on, both um, for streaming for Disney Plus and the films themselves. And all the work we do for other studios. So we do work for Warner Brothers and, and all the studios that are out there for very ambitious uh, feature films and streaming shows. So it's a pretty exciting time to get to be here at Industrial Light and Magic. Did you ever see yourself when you're working on Mirror Mirror 2 that you're going to be the head of ILM someday? I could never have dreamed, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes, I don't know too many. Have you seen Mirror Mirror 2? <laughs> I saw the first one, and I actually got to see well that done. in the theater. Well done. Yes, that was uh, my first feature film credit, and perhaps not my best work, but it was my first, you know, you got to get your experience somewhere. And um, yeah, definitely fun experience. And going from that to getting to work at the best VFX company in the world feels like a, a real pleasure. I mean, when they asked me to come up here, um, I was working at Sony, and I had had a lot of years at Sony Imageworks and had a great experience working really, with really talented artists there. But when they asked me to come up and told me what their plan was to make 10 years of Star Wars movies, they, they asked if I was interested. And I'm like, yeah, no question about it. So it, was a, it is kind of a dream come true. That's fantastic. Mr. Bredo, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. What's that flash? We're losing their deflector shield. Don't trap yourselves in. I'm going to make a jump to light speed. Let me pimp for a minute for a cash in my chip. When you see the tea head, then you know that it's on. 
No, it's not the low, so they're playing my song I'ma be a space jockey, not according to Modi I'm just a sharp shooting shot, I always avoid it eroding All right, we're back and we're talking about Solo, a Star Wars story. So did you guys get a chance to see the Solo fan edit that I threw out in the Dropbox? You know, I didn't. (laughs) I thought about it and I was like, I don't know if I can do this because I'm working double shifts for two weeks straight and I just wasn't able to cram it as much as I wanted to. And especially when I read that part of it was removing some of the humor and I thought the humor was kind of what I liked about a lot of the movie. I watched it today. This is the first chance I had. Other than those horrible opening credits. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was actually where I tuned out. I turned it on for about five minutes and I went, oh, oh, no. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? There are fonts. Very, there's like a whole font family associated with Star Wars. And you don't choose to use any of those for your opening title. And why did you have to replace the title card? I mean, and add those horrible credits over the... Just... Yeah, that was bad. It was bad. It was a bad fan edit. Not to mention, there's not a single Star Wars movie where actors' names uh, show up in the beginning. Yeah, that does right? not. I, like, I can understand if, if you wanted to, to go and put in, like, an opening crawl like we're used to and, and make it feel more like the originals. But no, they went way farther in the opposite direction. Yeah, for like a, like a sitcom from the 80s or something. But not only that, there are there, there's there's rules to how people are credited. You can't just put up like three people's names and be like, fuck it, that's fine. Oh, yeah. You got to go through the whole thing, man. Yeah. And then have your with and ands and special guest if that's a thing. And yeah, but when you're, when you're just some rogue editor <laughs> on the internet, you don't have to worry about SAG credits. <laughs> true. I true. Mean, but I've seen so many good fan edits of stuff and this just didn't do it. And then, yeah, like, what I read as well was like, we removed a lot of the inappropriate humor in this. So I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, that Death Star droid, he's still there. We just don't see him get hit and then his head on the ground. And I'm like, well, you could have just eliminated that Death Star droid altogether. Like, why'd you even have him in there? And then other things that I was just like, well, I would find that line objectionable, quote unquote, like, You've never slept better than in a Wookiee's lap or whatever. I'm like, okay, that's kind of <laughs> yeah. like we're going a little too far with the Rio Durant uh, ad libs here. Like, we don't need to have all that stuff. So just cut that out. But no. And they even left in the one, the other line that a lot of people objected to, which was uh, Han Solo giving Chewbacca a nickname. And it was just like, again, you could have just cut right after that. I figured if any line was going to be cut, it would have been the. Uh if you watch me i can't perform exactly (laughs) i mean she's obviously saying that to be inappropriate so that's why it's you know there but if you're gonna cut that stuff cut that i was afraid that they were gonna cut out l3 as much as possible yeah that's kind of why i just checked out i was like oh i know where this is gonna go so they didn't do that that's even weirder yeah, no, there was way more of her in there, left in there, than I thought there would be. And I watched it partly because um, of the whole Little Mermaid thing going on. I'm like, all right, I haven't really complained about anything really hardcore lately. Give me something to complain about, movie. And uh, it really didn't. It was just the fan that it felt more like somebody's opinion of what it should have been. And it only cut seconds at a time. If you're going to do a fan edit, I mean, do a despecialized version, do um, what Adiwan's doing and like make a super insane special edition of something. Don't just trim it. 
he didn't even put back in that scene I was talking about earlier with the uh, the eels or with the the tie fighter. Oh, uh, the tie fighters. Uh, you talking when they're rolling off of the off of the um, assembly line in their no, way? No, no. When oh. when he's uh, when he's flying the tie fighter oh, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. crashing it, and I'm like, well, that makes sense. But instead, he put in the scene where the dude died that we didn't know. And, and I was like, what the fuck, man? And <laughs> those pathetic blaster bolts and the um, that 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 preliminary scout walker in the background that just doesn't match it's it's the composite of it is just so awful it sticks out like a sore thumb like there's a reason it's cut scene unless you can finish the the computer work i mean it that just pulled me out of it at that point i'm like okay yeah right this is a fan edit i forgot I would highly recommend watching all of the deleted scenes on the solo Blu-ray and they're out there on YouTube as well, because like you said, they are not finished. So like there are shots of those worms in the tank and you see the guys with the worms just moving them. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on? I was so confused. And I was like, Oh, I'm watching this, you know, before they put in the special, like, and there's more of Han Solo when he meets Chewbacca and uh, they're fighting. And at one point, like uh, Chewbacca is holding him up against that post and I can see the wires coming out from behind the uh, Han Solo's jacket. I was like, what the fuck is going? Oh, Oh yeah. They haven't painted this stuff stuff out okay there was a the the nice thing about that whole han and chewy fight is there's a real subtle like sly reference to him being frozen in carbonite when he's getting pushed down in the mud and his hands are up by his head like like he's like i'm not gonna fight you and um that that was that that took me like a second or third watch to be like oh yeah that's that's how you do it that's how you you be subtle about things he almost says I don't have it with me, but he says something else like very similar. And I was like, see, that's nice. It's, it's almost the line. Yeah. It's, it feels more like a characteristic of his personality than a callback to that one thing he did that one time. Yeah. He's basically, it's, I bullshit like this all the time. Yeah. This is just how <laughs> I communicate and deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like even at the very beginning, he's like, Oh, I was just on my way to see lady Proxima. And it was like, very similar to what he says to Greedo. It's like, okay, cool. This is nice. And I do have to say, with this whole time, I haven't said Alden Ehrenreich's name because I was afraid I'd mispronounce it, but he does a fucking great job. I have to say that I thought he really got into the solo character and played him as well as anybody I could have imagined playing him. It comes down to the cocky swagger. You can't see it in photos. It doesn't play that way. It's like Ledger's Joker. Like, you can see a picture of him and be like, yeah, all right, it looks like the Joker. But then once he's moving and talking, you're like, oh, shit, that's uh, that's, that's frightening. <laughs> and here it was like, okay, he's got he's got the feel of the character. So that's that's enough. And I just, I, you know, you just kind of got to let it go and go with it. Be like, this is this is who they picked. The spirit's there. It's not it doesn't feel like somebody doing an imitation. He's just, he's got the swagger. That's, that's what that character boils down to more than any, you know, oh, well, he didn't get the correct intonation of, you know, <laughs> it's, it was just, <laughs> it, it, it felt like the same guy. Yeah. At a different point in his life, which is what you want out of this. Yeah. And what I, what I, what I really appreciate too is you have the whole, 
like B plot for Han through all the movies is, is he owes Jabba money and he goes and takes this, this, this job from Jabba real early on when he is still young, naive and stupid. And he's paying for that for a long time. And it's, it's kind of a good character builder because if he is on the run this whole time, then you can see him becoming the slightly paranoid, always looking over your shoulder, grizzled, I don't give a shit about anybody else but me and Chewy kind of guy. And that's not anything that they had to explain to us. And on modern day Earth, we call that kind of debt student loans. Yes. <laughs> yes. I also like when Beckett is just like, you don't want that kind of a price on your head. And he's like, basically just warns him off of this thing. And it's just like, okay, that's nice. I mean, it's almost the exact same line of like, you know, you don't know what it's like having a price on your head that I think he gives to Leia in uh, empire strikes back. I, I think, doesn't he actually say Mysterio's line or Mysterious says Han's line. You don't want any part of this, which is great. I, I think that's a great line. It shows such, arrogance and and just not knowing anybody else or trusting anybody else around you it's 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 it means different things when different characters say it and with han it's just like it should be followed up with a sad trombone so i mean there were so many ways that this movie could have gone bad and especially the whole idea of having the switch in regimes and stuff. And even looking at uh, Rob Berdow's book where it was, um, you know, seeing some of the scenes that were visualized and almost shot like things like um, they were, it was almost going to be more like a Western with uh, they were riding these creatures to get to the train. And then they were going to jump from the creatures onto the train, just like jumping from horseback onto the train. And it's like, okay, good. I'm, Kind of glad they cut that because it was a little too on the nose as it is. I mean, you're talking about Rio and, and Beckett and all this stuff. It's already very Western, but it was like it would have pushed it a little bit too far, I think. And I kind of wonder if that was maybe let, let's Dial tone it back, it back a little, a little bit. bit. Yeah. 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 I mean, you've got Larry Kasdan in the driver's seat as far as the script goes and him and his son. And I mean, Kasdan made one of, to me, one of the best Westerns ever with Silverado. So the guy knows how to do Westerns. He knows how to do action. He knows how to do Star Wars films. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I trust the guy, but you know, yeah, maybe, honestly, maybe for crafted for me, the weird element was Ron Howard because Willow was like a fantasy, but has he ever done anything, you know, on this more, this bigger sci-fi scope before, really? I can't think of anything. When he was announced as, you know, taking on the part, I was like, you know, I think of Ron Howard as like a dependable, you know, kind of utilitarian sort of director, but I never think of him as really having a style, I guess. He's just a guy that will get a job done. And then I also remember that goddamn Grinch movie. Then he made, <laughs> and I, I just, ooh. So I, I really didn't know what to expect. So he was the unproven element for me that actually worked out a lot better than I'd anticipated. I think they did themselves, well, depending on how you come down about this, they either did themselves a favor by keeping the same DP, or they did themselves a disservice by keeping the same DP, because some people complained a lot about how dark the movie was. But what, were you watching it again? I was just like, I have no problems with the way that this movie looks. I think it actually has a very good look. 
I mean, there are a couple dark shots in there, but whatever. I like the blue tinting inside of uh, Lady Proxima's place. I like the, especially the light in um, the bar where he meets Lando. I think that is really nice. The light in uh, uh, Dryden Voss's ship uh, coming in through those wide bay windows, I thought looked really nice all the time. Don't you want that for 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 a film for different characters to have a different uh, visual palette? I mean, I mean, I didn't go to film school, but I have watched a lot of movies. Isn't that how it works? And uh, looking at looking at Ron Howard's um, IMDb page here, the closest he got to space was Apollo thirteen. Yeah, which very very different movie. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, uh, and Cocoon. Cocoon. That was the other one. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. man. I forgot about Cocoon. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean Backdraft has a couple of action pieces in it but not to this to this level. I had such problems with The Beautiful Mind. I just I don't know. I I was not a big fan of that movie. I mean even though Paul Bettany's great as uh you know one of his invisible friends and stuff, I guess having been a fan of Fight Club, I was just like, "Oh, I can see this twist coming a mile away." Yeah, especially learning after the fact that this true story they kind of just made it up. Yeah. That's how you do it, you know. Oh, you mean the band wasn't broken up before they did Live Aid? Oh, you mean they didn't play an, uh, a song from jazz in the 1970s? Really? God. Uh, uh, well, for me, Ron Howard can do no wrong after Night Shift. Yes. I still love that movie. That's the one I grew up loving. I, I've been afraid to revisit it because I, I, I honestly was wondering, is that going to be one of those movies that, that is uh, problematic in today's age? Oh, yeah. If you like Dr. Detroit, you'll, you'll for sure still like Night Shift. I'm positive. <laughs> All right, guys. So, Chris, what has been going on with you these days? working raising children but uh outside the cinema we're still going surprise um every week i think we're coming up to episode 600 holy Ooh. shit yeah that's what i said when bill told me what did we just we just reviewed uh robot carnival was one that bill's like hey we haven't watched this in a while let's uh let's do that uh we only had time because of of stuff he's filming and my work schedule and stuff we only had time for one review we did some list stuff we did some talking about stuff he didn't see spider-man far from home so we couldn't talk about that um but i tried to spoil it as much as possible for him no i didn't do that um i would never do that uh not knowingly um, and then, uh, actually, I don't know what, where I, I know that next week, uh, one of the films we're reviewing is, um, uh, Mandroid. Oh, nice. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, here's a question I have, uh, Mandroid at the end teases, um, a sequel, a follow-up to it, like the way Buckaroo Banzai did, except Mandroid got their sequel made. How did that happen? I don't get it. Mike, I need you to look into that for me. <laughs> I like how I get homework from this movie. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Don't do anything with Mandroid. Don't even think about it. So, yeah, every Monday we record. And um, if you're a non-Patreon person, uh, it comes out on the feed on Wednesdays. That's that's pretty much my extent of online stuff that I do now. I proudly support Outside the Cinema. <laughs> Thank you. And, Josh, what is happening in your world, sir? You know, not a whole lot online. I, uh... Over over the last few months, my whole world kind of flipped upside down in the best way possible. I uh, I started working at our local Alamo Draft House that's only been around for about two years. Um, I started working there 
back in March. And within a month of doing that, I uh, went from concierge, you know, the tickets to hosting events. And then a month after that, I got promoted to projection. So I've literally been in the projection booth the last couple of months and uh, spending my time with movies again instead of the miserable years of retail that I have in my rear view. Movies are, are back in the forefront of my life and it feels wonderful and it's nice to talk about them. And I'm not dealing with angry people who are trying to sell me a pair of headphones that they stole from the convenience store across the street for some crack money. Define irony. A guy who hosts a, a podcast called The Projection Booth is on a episode with two guys who actually work in The Projection Booth, and the guy who hosts has never actually been a projectionist. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> well, we can, uh, we can deputize you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't know how bad I would fuck up that print. Oh, well, that's, no, I, you know, trust I mean, me, I have print? a pretty good idea. <laughs> well, these days, it isn't just all robots and I just plug in a DCP and hit go? Pretty and... much. There's, you know, there's more to it from time to time, especially especially with Alamo, because there's so many special events. So we actually have to, you know, press buttons for people, turn on, turn on lights, turn on microphones, hook things up, you know. But yeah, a regular place is probably all automated and that's depressing. But I don't want to work at a regular place. I want to work at a place where I can spend, you know, my day upstairs on a computer, putting everything together, and then go host UHF in a couple weeks and make people <laughs> eat a Twinkie Wiener sandwich. I'm excited. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I tell my boss to stop calling me a robot, even though I am really stiff most of the time with my joints and everything. Uh, but he doesn't listen, so whatever. <laughs> Oil can. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, Projection Booth Podcast, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Han Solo, the real hero. I thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. You're Han Solo. Wasn't he a war hero? Han Solo. Han Solo. Solo. Han, don't. You're Han Solo. Solo. Come on, let's go. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution. I take orders from just one person. What's the problem? I told you I'd outrun him. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. I take orders from just one person. The Han Solo that fought with the rebellion. Han Solo just stole back the Millennium Falcon. Too much stress on the hyperdrive. Then we'll do it real quiet like. I think you just can't bear to let a gorgeous guy like me out of your sight. Come on, admit it. Sometimes you think I'm all right. All right, all right. Pretty good in the fight. The dark side in the light. Jedi Knight! What's your plan? If I don't pay off job with that, I'm a dead man. I understand. She's fast enough for me, old man. I was just on my way to pay you back, and it got a little sidetracked. This crazy attack. A little bit more to it than that. Relax. Not a scratch. You lost her to me fair and square. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, yeah? Whatever you do, don't stay. Ah, repairs. Han Solo. The real hero. I thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. You're Han Solo. Wasn't he a war hero? Han Solo. Han Solo. Solo. Han, don't. You're Han Solo. Solo. Come on, let's go. I got a bad feeling about this. A really bad feeling about this. I got a bad feeling about this. 
afraid I'm gonna leave without giving you a goodbye kiss. Sometimes I amaze even myself. I'm only trying to help. I got time for anything else. Point that thing someplace else. Then I'll see you in hell. Seeing you sure brings back a few things. Well, I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Come on, let's keep a little optimism. I like this thing. But who's gonna fly it, kid? Don't get excited. I told you we should double check the western reaches. That's what I always wanted. May the force be with you. Good to see you. Been waiting for you. Down, bring it down, 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 bring it down. Well done with your lead, pal. Bring it down, bring it down, 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 bring it down. Wow. Straight fight callers sneaking around. I take orders from just one person. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.